My number one album. Big shocker to me. Also folklore. Whoa. Are you ready to dive into all things Taylor Swift? Good for a Weekend is the ultimate podcast for any Swiftie. With new episodes dropping bi-monthly, as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to the latest rumors and news, it's your one-stop shop for all things T-Swift. We also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts. Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know. Well, just is that like it's a perfect album the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about that's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials to participate simply fill up an orange hefty renew bag with accepted items tie it up and drop it in with your regular recycling that's it it's that easy it's time to rethink recycling with renew Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello again. Welcome to the Spark Parade. I'm Adam Unz. Thank you for joining me. I hope you've all had a lovely week. So, on today's episode, I am going to be talking to theater director Phil Wilmot. Theater director, writer, sometimes actor Phil Wilmot. We talked about his love of a hugely successful production of Guys and Dolls that started at the National Theatre in London in 1982. That was followed by a UK national tour and a long run in the West End. It's a very fun conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. In fact, I'm going to throw a caution to the wind and say you will enjoy it. So there. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the power of live performance, more specifically the power of live theatre. Phil and I touch a bit on the very fleeting nature of theater. A production only exists for a limited amount of time, and in most cases, it's not filmed, so you either see it live or you don't see it at all. And each night it's performed will be slightly different to every other. You know, the actors feed off of and react to the energy of the crowd, and it's also one of the only art forms where the audience is still expected to engage with it communally, but silently. Obviously, it doesn't always work out that way. Phones go off, people break the silence by talking or eating or some other asshole behavior, but the expectation of silence is still there. Unlike at a concert, you can't chat with your friends like many people do at a concert. At the theater, you have a room full of people silently listening to a story that, as a result of their presence, or at least in part because of their presence, will never be told in quite the same way again. There may be different productions of the same show, but there'll always be something new. Each production exists as its own independent work of art, and in many ways, so does each performance. So when you go to the theater, there's a magic in knowing that you're participating in something that only really exists for that night. That's pretty special, right? Okay, onwards and upwards, as they say. Let's move on to my chat with the lovely Phil Wilmot about the National Theater's production of Guys and Dolls. Guys and Dolls at the National. This is 1982. Mm-hmm. So w- w- tell me about like the how how you came to it. Like, had you heard about what a you know sensation it was and wanted to see it because of that, or were you just seeing a lot of stuff at the National? Or no, I mean, in fact, I didn't see it in uh, I didn't see it in London. I saw it in Bristol, where I grew right. up, and. Um, I was uh, I was like a really geeky theatre kid. I, I, I knew no one else who was interested in theatre, but I used to kind of um, 
sneak away and see things most Saturdays because there was quite a lot of good theatre in Bristol. So mm-hmm. I had I had learnt that I liked it, and um, it was really great as a as a kid going to see theatre with with no prior knowledge at all. So like I, I saw a lot of plays, and it was just so exciting to see. He- things like Henry V and have no idea whether the English were going to win. And um, there was a really good rep theatre in Bristol at the time and they did lots of classic plays. And basically I learned more from going to the theatre than I did at school. But the reason why um, Guys and Dolls was a revelation is I had never seen a big glossy musical before. Mm -hmm. And I could not believe the power of it, the sort of waves of joy and energy that were coming off the stage uh, into the the auditorium. Uh, This was at the Bristol Hippodrome, which is about 2,000 seater, and the waves of joy and love that was going back to the actors. And it was just the most amazing thing. And to to hear that, I didn't know it was a classic score then, but just to hear those songs played by a brilliant full orchestra and to see comedy performers at the very top of their game. Um, and uh, so I, I saw it and then I went back every single night and uh, that was the start of it really. I was kind of hooked. There was uh, there was no way back. I knew that I had to make my living in that world somehow. Hmm. H- had you seen any musicals before or? No, not really. I'd, I'd done, I did, um, Amdram or community theatre, as the Americans call it. So I, I'd, I'd been in some, mm-hmm. um, and I'd enjoyed that very much, and I'd loved that that burst of adrenaline, adrenaline you get when a scene's going well and the emotions are so high, and then you burst into song. That was kind of wonderful. But I'd never seen, I'd just seen other amateurs do it. I'd never seen like real top professionals do it. So I think that's that's kind of really why it blew me away. And back then, I had no idea that there was things like. Uh, writers and directors because all, all, all I saw was what was on stage so that's it was part of what um, persuaded me that I wanted to become an actor and that I wanted to go to drama school wow that's <laughs> the power of live theater I, I don't know I mean I, I think coming from the perspective of an actor it's probably different because I was very affected by theater as a as a young child as well and mm-hmm. I, I understand that feeling so I don't know if it's just performers who feel that immediate kind of visceral connection to seeing shows and it has this transformative you kind of feel like you've come home you kind of feel like oh this is my world this is where where i want to belong i think Mm -hmm. no that was that was uh, that was certainly what what i felt yeah it it also felt that or seems that this particular production really touched a nerve with huge amounts of people um mm-hmm. kind of, michael yeah. michael grandage he uh he had a similar experience with it when he when he was a kid that that very same production and um i, I always say to people oh you can do a magnificent production of king lear but there will be nothing like the moment in guys and dolls when they sing sit down the rocking your boat sit down you're rocking the boat and i've seen it i've seen countless productions now no matter how bad the production is when they sing sit down you're rocking the boat the roof goes off the place and that's a that's a kind of extraordinary thing and i always like to point that out to people who are um, snobby about musicals uh, straight plays very seldom have that incredible uplift mm-hmm. and also it's i guess the only other art form that has as much there's a bit of an expectation of rapturous re- applause but wh- where there's room for it is like going to concerts 
Mm. But yeah, the the reviews for the London production were, you know, people <laughs> saying that during that number in particular, or um, after it, that there would be multiple encores, sometimes up to like five or six, where people just would not allow the show to carry on yeah. without hearing it again. Um, I discovered, um, I'm watching it on subsequent many successive nights, that uh, at the end of that number, if the guy playing Nathan Detroit put his hat on, then they would continue. But if he kept his hat off, they knew that they were going to do more and more encores, which was really good fun. Yeah. I also, oh. the, uh, there was a Guardian article about Richard Thomas saying that he saw the London production and that right after Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat, they had nine million encores and that Bob Hoskins kind of came to the front of the stage and just started saying, shut up, shut up, we have to keep going. And it's like, you know. Don't get that in a play. Yeah, yeah. But it was was also a very important production for British theatre and for musicals in Britain because up until that time, there had been this sort of incredible snobbery about them. There's a rumour that Laurence Olivier talked about doing it when the National Theatre was first founded, but it it never happened. And up until then, it was seen as slumming it to do a musical. And then Richard Eyre directed this production, and suddenly it was all right. Suddenly it was uh, critically respectable. Um, and, and from that point, we got people like Trevor Nunn. But, but basically anyone who was anyone then wanted to direct a musical as, as, as well as just straight play. So it was, it was part of the legitimizing of the musical, I think, in Britain. Yeah. And I think box office receipts help people, you know, mm. make shows that are, are well-received and successful and critically acclaimed and financially viable. But seeing an audience on their feet, especially, you know, in this country... You, you people will give a standing ovation to a, a pot of plant. It doesn't. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Pr- pretty easy on on uh, getting on their feet, but not as much in in the UK and particularly in London. That I think it has. It takes something. Well, it's it's spreading slightly that this kind of habit of leaping to your feet, and mm-hmm. it's because of uh, Strictly Come Dancing and Pop Idol and X Factor, where mm-hmm. um, everyone sees that that's what audiences are supposed to do. They're supposed to get to their feet. So it's becoming slightly more common, but. Uh, yeah, you, you do have to kind of earn it more um, mm-hmm. in London. And I've certainly seen previews of, of new productions, of new musicals, uh, where the audience steadfastly refuses to get up off it, get to their feet at the end. And, and then you sort of know you're doing it wrong, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it's a good gauge. Yeah. And in some ways, I think that's really helpful. Like here, unless something is offensive... Um, particularly on Broadway, it's just like that's part of the convention is, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's that people have spent so much money that they feel like... I was going to say, it is, it's a major investment, isn't it, to go mm. see Broadway shows. I think people sit there almost defy it to be bad. They kind of, uh, they, they really want it to be good. And um, as a result, they have a good time. I mean, the other day I saw one of the last previews of King Kong and it was packed and people were having a fantastic time. And I was thinking, okay, no, ma- no matter what the flaws of this show, and it, you know, it's certainly no follies, it hits the spot. It gives people that extraordinary burst of joy and, exper- and, and a feeling that they're experiencing something special. Yeah. And I, I haven't seen that show, but uh, from what I've heard from other people, it's like has has a lot of flaws, but the the spectacle of it. Yeah, you especially. you will remember it all your life. Mm. I mean, and that's not to be sniffed at. Sometimes I think, well, a lot in in theatre, 
we people who make theatre, sometimes it's just really lovely to make people laugh. I mean, I, I always say that the, the nicest things that can happen in my job is, one, to read that you're clever in The Guardian, and two, stand at the back of an auditorium and hear the whole audience roaring with laughter because you can't fake that either either they find it funny or they don't so the, the, those nights and those productions when you get it when that audience is like really laughing uh, those those are very special to me yeah and i think that is a key difference between musicals and straight plays as well is that if you're doing a play unless it is a comedy you still f- feed off of the energy from the audience you still understand yeah. what you know whether they're paying attention and what the things that they're reacting to but mm. it's not as clear-cut and it's not as obvious and with a musical there are these breaking points where everyone knows that they're supposed to react and you, yeah you know it's like the the applause meter um you can tell if people are being polite or if they're actually if it's like a rapturous response and they're really engaging with it and also yeah musicals tend to have you know some, some musicals are serious but they tend to have comic elements and mm. um getting those points of reaction where you can every every theatrical production has those moments where you know this is a place where there's usually a reaction and you can kind of yeah. how much the audience is enjoying it but they come yeah. fast and furious with a um a musical well we were that we we were, we were uh, in a play you and i and we had scenes together and um, I mean, you you did that that play longer than I did, but I did it for quite a long time. And I never got bored with trying to to get the rhythm of it exactly right, so that it got the right laugh in the right place. That uh, um, I I don't tend to to act anymore, but but I really miss that. I really miss that sort of joy of being up there and and trying to take an audience with you. But it's interesting what you're saying about audience reactions because it's almost the opposite with with a, with a drama. There's, there's that legend, I don't know if it's true or not, that on the first night of Death of a Salesman, it finished and then the audience just sat there in silence. And I think, oh, God, that must be so, that must be such a wonderful feeling to, to like, stun an audience like that. And then, of course, they went mental for half an hour. Yeah, there's, as well as having that feeling that you're taking the audience along with the laughs and the comedy, I mean, you'll have experienced this. It's, it's also nice when you can sort of feel them collectively leaning forward when they're kind of hanging on every word. And if you can make an audience cry, that's, that's fantastic. I always say, if I'm working on a new musical with a, another writer, I'll say, okay, if we can make them laugh out loud, and cry in the second act, then it's a hit because then they go to work the next day and say, and tell people they had this extraordinary experience. I um, saw a color purple, the the color purple, excuse me, uh, on Broadway with uh, Cynthia Revo and uh, Jennifer Hudson a couple of years ago, and. Mm-hmm just ended up I, I have a friend who does press for broadway shows and, and she had a spare ticket and we had these seats that were like exactly in the middle like right in front of the stage and you know an audience that was predominantly the new york standard new york theater goer like older white people wealthy stoic um and even knowing that the convention here is people getting on their feet at a moment's notice like two minute long standing ovations in the middle of the show. Yeah. Wow. Openly just like sobbing throughout the show. That exact, what you were just describing, like the, uh, the full gamut of emotions expressed openly and very obviously by nearly everyone in the whole place. And when you have that magic of, you know, a production that works so well that you get. Did you see, um, did you see Bette Midler in Hello Dolly? I didn't, no. 
that was um, that was like a going to some kind of religious revival meeting. They uh, they started going mental at the beat. when when the Hello Dolly theme came in the overture. They went mental when the staircase was wheeled on. They went mental in anticipation of her work walking down it. Everything she said, everything she sang, stopped the show. It, it was the most amazing love in. And I saw it a few months later with Bernadette Peters, who is who is actually probably actually better, but it didn't have that kind of extraordinary uh, revivalist feel about it. Right. It takes a, a, a kind of quite a special star, I think, to, to generate that. Or I remember the first, I, I saw preview of Wicked, I think, in New York, or, or, you know, right at the beginning when people had to, like, sell their families to get tickets or queue all night and somehow managed to get house seats. And just by the, by the time... The music started at the beginning. People were so hyped up and so excited to be there. Uh, it was extraordinary. I imagine I haven't seen Hamilton in New York, but I imagine it's a bit like that. Also, just that comparison between Bette Midler and Bernadette Peters. It's like, I, I mean, Bernadette Peters is an amazing performer as well, but there there is something about... There's, there's no formula to finding the performer or the production that's going to deliver that kind of response. But yeah. it doesn't necessarily need to be the person who's the most technically proficient in the role. It's it's There's something else that's just that little spark that can really yeah, yeah. suck people in and, and get that, that amazing reaction. I think that's why we all love acting really so much, that. Uh, was the set... Um, when you saw Guys and Dolls in Bristol, the big neon... Um... Yeah, it was very, a very beautiful set. And what uh, I, I, I didn't know, but um, I do from having seen it, that uh, the, the neon lights on Broadway used to be just all white. It's only relatively recently they've, they've become multicolored. And so that's the, the way they picked out that whole landscape in, 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 in some white neon lights and signage was, was, was very beautiful. I just, I also find it amazing and fascinating that you can take, you know, theater is ephemeral. It's, it's about, a, a, you know, this fleeting thing that happens for only this, a, a certain amount of time. And for most theatrical productions, that ends up being you know, a few months at most. And this mm. is something that at the national ran for four years and went all over the country and taking the same, you know, the bones of the production, you know, different actors. And obviously it's going to be different in different theaters, but I love the idea that something can, a production can start even in the smallest theater. And it's like a virus or something that's just, you know, starts yeah. in one point and then just spreads like wildfire and giving people a chance to enjoy that same um, magic in different parts of the country and even sometimes in different parts of the world is... Incredible. Yeah, no, certainly. Going back to what you were saying about you don't necessarily need to be a, a star to have that magic with the audience. So I remember in that production, Imelda Staunton, was one of the hotbox girls, um, and she didn't have any lines at all. But she you, she was just so funny. You couldn't take your eyes off her. And she was, you know, just in the chorus. And I think she was understudying Miss Adelaide. And then she went on to, to later to, to play Miss Adelaide. Uh, that, that, that show's lovely for that. It's got lovely little bits like the Havana Ballet and, and the, the girls hanging out backstage in the hotbox, which, which um, really allows for a... a big ensemble of people to, to shine. Mm. I saw the last um I saw the last Guys and Dolls on Broadway. It was a it was a disaster. It got got terrible reviews. Because it 
it has sort of lost the, the, the human element. It, it was at that period where everyone was obsessed with projected scenery. So, you know, on, on every high note, the, 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 the scenery had to kind of, it was like a panorama of New York and buildings would loom up out of the fog through the projections and it just sort of dehumanised it really. And, and it was very difficult for the actors to, to be funny at competing with all that scenery. There's no need for it. It makes you feel like they're overcompensating for something when, um, you know, there's that much distraction around them. And even if they're not, even if the production is absolutely fantastic, you're still distracted by the bells and whistles going off. Yeah. Yeah. That was the same thing about this um, production of The Color Purple, that the set, I guess the original production had the same problem like spending shit tons of money on who knows a spaceship and you know fireworks going off in the theater or whatever it was and Mm. there was an extra half hour or 45 minutes of running time because it took so long for the sets to move around and for all like these bits and pieces to 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 get into their places and this production was so streamlined the set was really effective really striking but just bare bones didn't interfere with the performances at all and it was mostly just chairs that people move from place to place and the suggestion of a different setting rather than having massive set pieces to demonstrate something that didn't really need to be demonstrated it really allowed the audience to focus on the performers and let them shine and just knowing when when gigantic set pieces are needed and when they're not well that's the, that's the genius of of the director john doyle who um is a, a british director we know this and uh he he really earned his his stripes like working in in rep and working in fringe and low budget uh stuff and he really got the knack of keeping things bold and minimal he's now the artistic director at can't remember. Anyway, he's been doing some amazing work down there. I saw him do his production of Pacific Overtures, which is a sort of unperformably boring Shakespeare um, sometime musical, but uh, he, he really stripped it right back till it worked. And recently he's done um, a Carmen Jones, which apparently is very good, and he's uh, doing Arturo Ui at the moment. So he's, he, he's, a, he's one of those directors that have created their own aesthetic. He, he started off everything as an actor musician's show, I think, People got sick of that now, but he's still maintained that kind of no fuss, a song starts, and that no big trucks or scenery need to kind of wheel into view to make it work. Well, uh, the internet is telling me, first of all, he's the artistic director of CST, yeah. and he directed that production. He did, yeah, he directed The Color yeah. Purple, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense. His big Broadway break was doing Sweeney Todd um, with just uh, a few actors on, on an empty set with actor musicians. And somehow he, when they brought it to Broadway, they got Patti LuPone to play Mrs. Lovett and she played the tuba in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, even, uh, yeah, even, even though she was a massive star, she seems to have embraced his aesthetic. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a sign, that, that's an indication of a real star, somebody who's willing to kind of take risks and be led in weird directions and and um understand that sometimes things that are unusual are going to produce the the work that people respond to the most yeah yeah absolutely also i think with both guys and dolls and the color purple a connection that i can see is songs with uh sorry musicals with songs that can stand on their own that people you know especially guys and dolls like people know songs from that show who have never mm. seen a musical in their life and yeah sometimes i feel like that's missing from musicals in the last 
20 years or so that there's a lot of musicals that it's like sung dialogue kind of talk singing not a lot of melody and not thinking about creating songs that are able to stand on their own able to convey the the same kind of emotional power when they're taken out of context Um, and older musicals especially musicals from 50s 60s 70s there was a a much bigger emphasis on not necessarily making those songs pop songs but making them songs that could be remembered um and appreciated by people who who would never actually see the show yeah it is essentially a populist entertainment the 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 the, um the moment when you stop wanting to use your piece of musical theatre to to touch and move and make people laugh, then it it, it stops being musical and it becomes music theatre. And they're, they're, they're sort of two very different animals. So what stuff have you seen recently that has really made you feel similarly? Have you, have you had the experience of seeing a show since then that has made you feel the same kind of awe or is it like uh, a heroin addict having their first hit that's the best one <laughs> it is a bit it, 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 it's harder and harder to yeah to get that high but i i always will regularly think back to um going to the theater as as a as a kid in bristol and just the, the magic of of the lights going down and you never know what was gonna appear before you and then they tell you a story and you get lost completely in the story I do a project um, each summer. There, there's a, a, an outdoor amphitheatre. Um, each summer I put on a, a family musical and um, and a classic. And the, the joy of that audience is people come who would never normally dream of coming to the theatre because it's free, because they walk past and see us rehearsing. They, they have a kind of interest in it. But to do to do a play like Medea for them and you know, no one in the audience having any idea that she was going to kill her children, no, no. The, the, the moment things like that happen, they, you, you can hear people like gasp out loud. Whereas if you, um, I imagine if you directed Madeira at the National Theatre, then uh, everyone who bought a ticket would, would know the story and would know what they're, they're guessing. But it's always a great pleasure to introduce people to these, these masterpieces uh, without them knowing anything about them. That is one of the most difficult things about theatre in New York is that it's so prohibitively expensive and the ways that you can make it more affordable you kind of have to already be invested in going to the theater it it, it Mm. isn't like casual theater goers or people who don't really have much interest in the theater would ever be introduced to the theater by happening upon a cheap set of theater tickets you kind of have to stand in a line and wait ages or you know know which apps to use or enter for something like hamilton enter a lottery and hope for tickets so there's already Mm. the expectation that you want to be there and that you know a thing or two about the theater before you're going i i don't think there's much like that here where you can kind of see theater casually or accidentally or um, yeah yeah even shakespeare in the park it's this mad mad rush to get tickets people camping out and queuing up and really making an investment in seeing theater um and it's not quite the same as trying to lure in audiences who, who wouldn't normally uh appreciate mm. No, absolutely. So yeah, that's a that's a really fantastic thing to be able to do theater in a public space. Hopefully, introduce some people to the experience of theater and uh, 
Yeah, the, the, I mean, certainly the, the, the family show is, um, I always say on the start of rehearsals, because it's the same actors who do both shows. I'll say, OK, now you're, you're probably mostly interested at this point in how you will play Agamemnon. But actually, um, a thousand people a night are going to come uh, along to see you play the Scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz. So you have to take that just as seriously, if not more, because uh, those those kids who've come along to see the Wizard of Oz, they, you know, we need them to keep coming back and back and back. We need them to fall in love with it. Uh, mm because that's how we make a living. So, yeah, that's important. Yeah, that's an interesting um, thing that I've... I I don't know if I've ever really thought of it that way, that children's theatre can sometimes be dismissed as, you know, something that actors shouldn't aspire to be a part of or that it's not as important as grown-up dramas and, and musicals and whatever, but providing children with that formative experience you know the same kind of feeling that you had when you were a kid that i had when i was a kid going to the theater and just being mesmerized and feeling like i'd never seen anything like that before and growing up watching tv and going to movies where there's this separation between you and the performance Mm. Um, going to a theater and feeling included and feeling like you in some ways you you affect what's going on on stage you you know your applause mm-hmm. your reaction feeds what's happening in front of you and it's yes, an like no other um, and allowing children to have an experience like that that just sticks in their mind plants that seed and whether they want to perform themselves or just want to continue to engage with theater by by being an audience member, ensuring that theater that's that's aimed at young people is something that's really going to have the same level of commitment and dedication as other forms of theater, so that yeah, definitely you can keep them coming back. Yeah. Um, do you think that seeing behind the curtain, literally and figuratively, has any effect on on how you perceive theater? Being a director, being a critic, seeing tons and tons of theater, do you feel like? I mean, obviously, it has to have changed how you perceive it, but what what effect do you think that has on the way? It, it has to be really good for me to, to to lose myself in it because I'm I'm very aware of uh, what strings are being pulled, how and when, and by whom. Mm-hmm. Which is um, actually why I love TV. This you know, it's a golden age of great TV drama. So um, most nights between midnight and two a.m., I watch I watch TV, and, and and I enjoy it because I, although I worked in TV and film when I was an actor, I I don't look at it and go, oh, the director should have done that, or uh, that, that that's much easier for me to to get lost in. Mm-hmm. And it's probably not as much of an issue for you. I'm I'm sure when you're reviewing shows, you can get comps but again prohibitive cost of theater it's not yeah as no, bad it's in the uk as it is in, in new york but it's not cheap in london and yeah no i i try i have to remember that because um i always get you know the best tickets free and mm-hmm. and you sort of uh, absolutely you take you take that for granted going back to the example of king kong i think reading the reviews they were the perspective of people who go and see a musical every week and who are sort of steeped and versed in the traditions of musicals. What's the point, really, in, in putting a show down for for not reaching those expectations when actually the whole the, the point of it, its entire raison d'etre, is to create an extraordinary night out, uh, mm-hmm. which it does, just probably not for people who go to theatre all the time and listen to musicals all the time. Yeah, yeah. I think... That's one of the biggest uphill battles for theater as well, is people knowing that if they watch a TV show and they don't like it, it's no harm, no foul. They don't have to worry about any um, taking a financial hit. If you go to a Broadway show and you don't like it, you may have spent 
I don't know, $300 on a couple of tickets. Yeah. You know, you feel it a lot more and it can scare you away. Um, So that puts an enormous amount of pressure on the people who are making theater as well. Good. So I I feel like we we got it. I think that's great. Uh, okay, brilliant. That's great. So well, nice uh, to talk to you. Yes. Um. Where, if people would like to find you and find out more about you, where is the best place to do that? PhilWilmot.org. PhilWilmot uh, one word with two L's and two T's, and then .org, and that's got some all my stuff on it. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. It was lovely to speak to you. Brilliant. All right. All right. Take care. Speak soon. Bye. Bye. What a guy, right? Did we all learn something today about the theater, but also about ourselves? I think we did, guys. I really do. Now, your favorite part of the show, what art did Adam like this week? Woohoo! So this week, I uh, saw a series of comedy specials by an English comic named James Acaster. He is a total fucking weirdo, but in the best possible way. And he's put together a four-part comedy special for Netflix called Repertoire. It's four one-hour stand-up sets that are loosely connected. It came out last year, but nobody told me, so I've only just watched it now. He is hilariously funny, but in a very particular way. So I can see how he can be a bit divisive. Uh, As he's fond of telling people, his father tweeted the following about him. He's not for everyone, but he works hard, is original, and is building a following amazing. That said, I loved it, and we all know my taste is impeccable, so why not give it a go, eh? All right, folks, that's it. Thanks again for listening. Please follow me on social media at Spark Parade. You can also support the show by donating on the website or by rating and reviewing wherever you download. Glowing reviews only, please, and as many stars as you are allowed. Okay, enough. More next week. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.